So uh, Exodus chapter 27, Exodus chapter 27, got a lot to cover this morning. Um, I'm excited about the subject material this morning as we start to really enter into the tabernacle. Up to now, it's been basically an introduction about the tabernacle, and so we'll get to reading here in a few few minutes here. But last week, if you remember, let me get this all set up. Uh, so last week, uh, we concluded from our study of Numbers chapter 1, chapter 2, with all that detail, God laid out carefully for us uh, the tribes of Israel in the form or shape of a cross. So the details matter with God. Every word matters to God. And so we saw clearly that uh, God is uh, showing us at what is at the heart of God. What is the mind of God? He's the architect, the designer of this. And he certainly had the cross in mind. The Bible says that the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. He clearly knew it was going to come through the cross. In fact, the fellowship of his people, while they didn't understand this, the fellowship of his people, Israel, would be through the cross. So there God sets that thing up in the middle of nowhere, in a wilderness, in the shape and form of a cross. I find that just fascinating as we dug into those details. But God's not grandiose about a lot. Now God can do things that are grandiose and have a wow factor, but God does a lot of things that just cause you to scratch your head and say, it just doesn't make sense. And we, we see here, if we see a, a more descriptive, this was actually built uh, as a replica to the actual uh, tent in the wilderness. But you'll see that there is absolutely nothing grandiose, nothing attractive, nothing appealing about that particular sanctuary. In fact, anything, it's pretty ugly. Now, unfortunately, I, I don't remember God giving us details about electrical box, but somehow it found its way in there. But <laughs> hey, you never know with miracles of God. But I, I'm always reminded of this verse when I look at this tent, and I mentioned this in the first uh, time we met on this study, is that for he shall grow up, talking about Christ, before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. Interesting. He hath no form of comeliness, and we shall see him... There is no beauty that we should desire Him. We look on the outward. We tend to look for what's beautiful and fashionable and exciting, but God doesn't look at it that way. I mean, think about it. He picked a shepherd boy to rule the, as king of Israel. Out of all the people that could have been chosen, it was David the shepherd. Who would have thought? But that's the ways of God. And, and yet we see there's no beauty, just like the tent, there's no beauty to the sanctuary sitting in the middle of the wilderness. Quite the opposite, to be honest with you. But now God can do grandiose things, and He will do. But in this case, He hasn't. And so, but in this is the riches of Christ. The tabernacle just screams the heart of God. And what's important to God, every detail matters to God. Every detail is given to us because it's going to teach us about Christ. And I repeat that every week. And it'll talk us, and you'll see that today, about our walk with God. Now, we can read here uh, briefly in verse 9 of chapter 27. And we'll read uh, just a couple more. It says, Thou shalt make the court of the tabernacle. So that's, that, you're looking at that outward, uh, those, what I would call curtains, 
fine twin linen. He says, that's the court of the tabernacle. For the south side, southward, there shall be hangings of the court of the uh, twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Uh, verse 12, I told you this is boring stuff. Most people read this stuff, it's like, whatever. I mean, okay, it's a hundred feet long, it's white, you know, it's a curtain, but to God it's, it's important. So verse 12, into the breadth of the court, on the west side shall be hangings of 50 cubits, their pillars 10 and their sockets 10. So 10 pillars, 10 sockets that hold up the curtains. And so he, he continues with that, with one exception we'll talk about here in a minute, and that's the entrance. So there is the court of the tabernacle. Like I said, God places this sanctuary, which is at the heart of God, in the middle of a wilderness, which is nothing more than a barren dust bowl. Only God would do something like that. You'd think God would do something a little bit bigger and better, but He doesn't. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll remember that... that um, part where Elijah was having his pity party, and he was looking for God in something big. He was looking for the wind that came by, but God wasn't in the wind. He, there was an earthquake, and he was looking for God in the earthquake, but God wasn't found in the earthquake. And there was the fire, but God wasn't found in the fire. But then you read, and there was the still small voice. Sometimes it's the little things, the quietness of God, not the grandiose. We can learn something from that. And I, I, I look at this, this verse kind of really sums it up. It says, but God hath chosen the foolish things, the foolish things of the world. And you look at that, the world looks at that and certainly believes that's just foolish. Confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Oftentimes it's the opposite of what we think God's work. I've seen people come out you know, young kids come, want to be in the mission field, want to be in the ministry. I'll look up, and I don't think they're really called. I mean, I'm, in my mind, you know, they're weak. They're not that smart. They, they don't have the, uh, the appearance. And I thought, man, God could take someone like that and do something miraculously the opposite of what I would think. So never underestimate because of what someone looks like or how they dress or anything, even Jim, even Jim's dress. I mean, God's doing great things to you, brother. Trust me. And here's what's interesting about this. Here we are, a bunch of saved Gentiles and our Jewish friends. Saved Jewish friends. And we're sitting here on a Sunday with blue skies outside and plenty to do outside of this room. And we have an interest in some tent in the wilderness that was written about 3,000 years ago. How do you explain that? That's not logical for anybody in this room. It's not even reasonable. But it explains it's supernatural. You have an interest because God put that interest in your heart. You want to learn because you want to learn about God. That is a supernatural, spiritual event. It's also because you've been given illumination and light so, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. The people on the outside are like, well, they're wasting their time in there. Oh no, quite the opposite. So what was inside the tabernacle, i got to quote this verse I was thinking about earlier this morning. Um, it's the depth of the riches of God, or the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and his ways past finding out. That's something 
to be said about digging into the truth of God, you find so much treasure, so many golden nuggets of truth. So what was inside the tabernacle was hid, basically, from the outside of the world. That tabernacle was seven and a half feet high. So it wasn't that tall, but tall enough to where the average person couldn't see in. There's nothing they could see. All they knew there was activity going on inside, but they didn't really know what was going on. It really is a picture of what the world sees. The things inside the sanctuary, the things of God, are hidden to the people whose eyes are closed and are blind. And so we see here that God didn't allow them. The average Israelite did not know or see what was going on. They heard about it, but they didn't see it. So it was hid from them, from the outside world. And we learned from that that the natural man receiveth not the things of God, the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. Because why? They are spiritually discerned. But that's why you're here today. Because you are spiritually discerning and desiring the things of God. But the natural man, the foolish man, doesn't want anything to do with that. So it's hid from him. They see nothing but an ugly tent wasting your time. Why would you bother? They look, drive by the church, they say, why? To them, our faith is baffling. It's boring. They refer to it as a bloody religion. But to us who've entered into the sanctuary, when you get inside this, you find out it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And and whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. So the things of God are often hidden even to believers who are not seeking God. As Pastor said last Wednesday, there, there is that trusting of the Lord, but then there's the knowing of God. The walk with God. And those that learn to walk with God, desire God, their eyes are opened and they illum- the truths of God are illuminated. But those who don't walk with God remain in darkness oftentimes. And don't get to see these things that God has for them. So here, we're going to learn about why the fine twin, or, uh, twined linen. Three times it's mentioned in Exodus 27. Now, linen in that day, in its natural state, would be what we would call white today, but an off-white, but nevertheless in the family of white. And so we're going to learn here that that linen, that outer tabernacle, which represents Christ, by the way, is righteousness. That white linen represents white righteousness. So let's look at the Scriptures to, to see what God has to say about this. And to her... Well, let me give you the context before I read this verse. This is the raptured saints who've gone through the judgment seat of Christ, and they are preparing the marriage supper of the Lamb, and they're preparing for their return with Christ as King of Kings. And here we read, and to her, that's you and I, as believers, preparing for the marriage supper of the Lamb, is granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen, here's the interpretation, is the righteousness of the saints. In this case, it's the righteousness of saints. We're going to study that the linen is the righteousness of Christ. But where do we get our righteousness from? We don't own, we don't have our own righteousness. We never will produce our own righteousness. Say, oh, well, wait, I thought we were supposed to labor and, and to be righteous. That's true, but it is God working in you to produce the righteous. You do not produce your own righteousness. Romans chapter 8, verse 3 says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled 
by us? Mm -mm. It says it might be fulfilled in us. We can't produce it by us. It's fulfilled in us because of the Holy Spirit's work. We yield ourselves in the righteousness of Christ. That's why they, you see them giving back the crowns to Christ. Because He gave it to them. He gave them the ability. He blessed them. And then they give it back to them as a gift. The fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Therefore, as by the offense of one, Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. So by the righteousness of one, now, I know you know this, but let's talk about it for a minute. The free gift came upon all men unto justification of life, Romans 5, 18. It is no coincidence that when Christ was buried, they wrapped Him in clean linen. Because it depicts the righteousness that He is. The, we all know that, that He is the only one born of the flesh who rose from the grave on His own power. No man has ever done that, but he did it because he was righteous and without sin. And so the Bible's clear that Christ is the only righteous one. So no coincidence that he was buried in clean linen. So yes, that's why we see the outer tabernacle is, is uh, fine twin uh, uh, linen. So moving on to the next uh, subject here is the gate of the court. Let's read this in Exodus chapter 27. Exodus chapter 27, verse 16. It says, And the gate of the court shall be the hanging of 20 cubits, so that would be 30 feet long. So a cubit's about a foot and a half. So it'll be uh, 30 feet long of blue, purple, and scarlet, and fine twin linen, wrought with needlework, and their pillars shall be four, and their sockets four. So you clearly see here that God's given them instructions to put one gate in the tabernacle. Now, what I learned from this, but and we'll get into some of the details about the gate here in a minute, but when anybody builds a building, we all know we build a front entrance. I mean, this is typical of man. They build a back entrance typically to get out. They have a side entrance is, is very common. I mean, it, you can't go in a building without multiple doors. But when God builds something, in this case, the tabernacle, he has one entrance. You're going in one entrance, you're going out one entrance. One entrance one, and, and one out. So what can we learn from the fact that God has one gate and why? As you enter, by the way, the, the direction, and I mentioned this last week, is east to west. It seems as though God has, and I don't clearly understand this, but as I study history, Pastor, we talked about, you know, when you talked about it a couple Sunday nights ago, if you, when you talked about the kingdom of God moving from Israel and then it moved, the, the, the natural progression of Christianity moved in an east to west fashion. It just seems like the, as God moves, He moves east to west. Now that doesn't mean there wasn't variety there, but the majority of movement was always east to west. And yet when God sets that tabernacle up, He sets it up in the direction you're supposed to approach Him, east to west. There's got to be something there, but there's certainly that gate was set up for one reason. God is making it abundantly clear that there is only one way to approach Him. One way. Boy, oh boy, we live in a world that just wants to figure out there are multiple ways, but yet God sets that tabernacle up. He makes it very clear there's only one way to come approach me. 
And you'll see this more and more as we study this out. But he, Jesus speaking in John 10, you should spend time in John chapter 10 as he talks about him as the, and the porter being John the Baptist and opening the door to the sheep gate. And, but he says in verse 2 of John chapter 10, he that entereth in by the door, he's referring to it lawfully, he said, is the shepherd of the sheep. So clearly, the door, the gate, the entrance is going to be representative of Christ Himself. Only one way, and it'll be through Christ Himself. And that Christ is connected to that linen, which is righteousness alone. It's through Jesus Christ. Continue. The gate, the only entrance. Jesus come out and said in John 14, I am the way. Not a way. The way. Just like John 1, in the beginning was God. And not a God, but God Himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by Me. Either Jesus Christ was telling us the truth, or He was as arrogant as any human being has been. To say, I am the way, and the truth and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. Either that statement's true or it's false. You either accept it as true or false. And that's why we have one entrance into the tabernacle to be able to serve God. But clearly Jesus finishes that discourse on the sheep, the sheep gate, and He says, I am the door. <laughs> you can't get any clearer than that. I am the door. He's not only the door, He's the hinges and the doorknob. He is, a, he is everything there in the gate. So, what else can we learn about the gate? Where was the location? Make it very clear. God specified everything. Location. He gave details about the size. He gave details about the material. Because all of it had to be preserved because it was representative of Jesus Christ. So when He sets this thing up, He sets that gate up on the east side. Now we learned last week who was the, who was the tribe that was in the, the beginning of the east gate. Judah. And what do we learn from Revelation chapter five, 5? That Jesus Christ is the lion from the tribe of Judah. So clearly we see once again, He set it up the east gate as, as, as a representative of Christ as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, there's, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on that, but there's a, there's a lot more to study on that subject alone. What else can we learn about the east? What's the first thing that we see in the morning? On the east, it comes up from the east and it settles on the west. So no surprise in Malachi 4, verse 2, that we learn that Jesus Christ is the Son, S- U-N of righteousness. So the Son of righteousness is not a misspelling. It is absolutely telling us what God is depicting of His Son's glory. So Jesus Christ is the Son of righteousness. So no coincidence that it rises from the east. So the very first light that comes up penetrating the darkness is the light that we see in the morning, which is a representative of Jesus Christ. And so we see here, or excuse me, let me go back here. Well, I'll read this verse here. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. John chapter 1, verse 9. The people which sat in darkness 
saw a great light. Again, the east is where the sun rises because it's the first thing that penetrates the darkness. Once again, representative of Jesus Christ. Psalm 19, uh, verses 4 and 5, talks about in them, God has set a tabernacle. As God has set the sun in it, or God has set the sun in the tabernacle, which is as a bridegroom which cometh out of his chamber. So he's liking the sun in a tabernacle as the bridegroom that's coming out of its chamber. We all know we're part of the bride of Christ. He's the bridegroom. Clearly, Psalm 19 is talking about Christ himself. And so we see, once again, it's hard to look at the sun the same after knowing these truths. And you get up, not all of us are getting up early in the morning to watch the sunrise, but those who do, you can't look at it the same ever again. You're thinking to yourself, that's, that's a picture of the bridegroom coming for his bride. You look at that, that's the light that giveth light to all men if they'll receive it. And that's why we read this. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light. I believe you're here because you came to the light. When you come to the light, you receive Christ as your light of your life, as your Savior, then you begin to reflect the light of Jesus Christ. You aren't the light. You reflect the light of Christ. Which is really interesting because in Colossians, Paul uses this analogy as among whom you shine as lights in the world. And then he says, holding forth, you're holding forth Christ in how you are ref reflecting Christ in your life. You're holding forth the word of life. There's an interesting study um, I'm not going to go into great detail, but in Song of Solomon, chapter 6, there's a description of Christ, I believe the physical description of Christ as, as a Jew, but in there it starts to liken uh, him as, a, as the bridegroom, and we being the bride, and there's this marriage going on, and it, said, and it has a reference to the bride looking as fair as the moon. So there's a, there's a reference there to believers are pictured like the moon, collectively. They're like the moon. So I can look, now I can't look at the moon anymore like I used to look at it because when I look at it, one thing I learn is it doesn't have its own light. It reflects the light of the sun, S-U-N of righteousness. But also, there was a full moon about a little over a week ago. If you take a look at that full moon, you ever notice? It's beautiful, right? But you'll notice something about it. There's a lot of black, dark, Spots all over that moon. You know why? Because it's a representation of sin. The scars of sin in life are shown. That's why I think there's a reference to the moon. And we reflect the light of Christ, the Son of Righteousness. Now we get all that from the fact that God set that up on the east side because that's where the sun rises. He wants people to know that Christ is all about the Son of Righteousness. So why the four posts that we read? Well, while I'm not dogmatic about this, because I don't think there's any way to prove this out in Scripture, but God has four posts only. There were ten on the back side, of the, but there's four. There was twenty, I believe, this side, and ten that side. And then in the, where the gate was, there's four posts. And I believe they represent the four Gospels detailing the life of Jesus Christ. 
It's the, it's the introduction of Christ and his life and the completion of his life. I mean, obviously there's a lot more that wasn't written. The Bible says the books of the world couldn't contain it. But the fact that we have four Gospels is where we learn of Christ. So that, I believe that's why we have four posts at the entrance because that is Christ. Why the four colors? Now remember the linen could be dyed and it would be dyed purple, scarlet, and blue. So the first color they mention is blue. Well, heavenly, because we know Christ was from above. Purple, because of His royalty as our high priest. Scarlet, because of the shedding of blood. It's only through the blood that God would save. And of course, we, re we studied this all because of the righteousness of Christ the white. So we see the four colors mentioned. Everything else was white, but then there's four colors with four posts. Certainly, there's some connection here with the Gospels and Jesus Christ and who He is where we learn about who he is so let's move on to the next phase of this we're finally I'll have a video I'm, I'm going to try to work on getting a 3d video uh, which will introduce you hopefully next week into the altar itself it's a pretty pretty fascinating one of the better ones out there but uh, for now you'll just have to put up with some pictures so introduction to the altar of burnt sacrifice so in uh, Exodus 27, Exodus 29, uh, let's read verse 1 of chapter 27, just to get by way of introduction. And thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood, five cubits long, five cubits uh, broad. The altar shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits. So God's very specific about that. We're going to study that next week. Um, why the, the specific measurements and all that, but clearly, this is the first instrument God has as you enter into the gate. Why? That's what it would have looked like. Of course, it, it wouldn't have been anything like that. One, you'd have smoke going up right now. There would have been blood everywhere. And I mean blood everywhere. It was not a pretty picture by any means. It was very violent. It was very bloody. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a second here. But that was the first instrument. It's also the largest of all the instruments that God gave to the, in the tabernacle. And so we have some, we really need to understand why God put it as the first instrument and why was it the largest instrument. There's a little closer up uh, picture of it. Again, this is just, it's not active, but you get an idea of what it looked like as the first. Well, there's not much to it, is there? I mean, it's a box with a grate right in the middle of it where they laid the animal sacrifice and they burned it morning and night. Morning and night. Morning and night. It never stopped. And imagine having that job. You, look, we can be hard on, on those Levite priests. Oh man, how did they miss it? But man, when you do something over and over and over and over, eventually you can get cold to it and routine and you, not, you fall out of love with it. That happened to the, in the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. He said, hey, you have a lot of good things, but one thing I have against thee, thou hast left thy first love. Because they, they probably got into a routine and fell out of love. So there's a lot here about this altar that is, uh, speaks of what is really at the heart of God. And so, again, nothing pretty and nothing appealing. So there we go, a little bit in an artistic 
way where they're, they're having to do the work of, of the sacrifice with the fire going. The altar was teaching those Israelites and teaching us, clearly there's no way to approach a holy God without dealing with sin first. It's first and foremost at the heart of God to deal with sin. That's true at salvation and it's true in our walk with God. You can't just let sin go and not deal with it. And we'll talk about why the next instrument is so important to God after the altar. The altar is going to establish the relationship with His people. It's the sacrifice of the Lamb that gave Him the rights to enter into a relationship and the fellowship. But then afterwards, they had responsibility to serve Him. And that's where we'll go in a couple weeks. So the Bible makes it very clear about sin. And when He, the Holy Spirit, has come, He will reprove the world of sin. This is why people don't like the message when you first (laughs) introduce them to Christ and you start talking about sin. It convicts them. It brings its judgment. And that's what the Bible says. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. He's reminding us of who we are. We're sinners by nature. And, And so He reproves the world of sin righteousness, and of judgment. John 16, 8. The very heart of the Gospels in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, 3. Um, I'm very thankful for the clarity of chapter 15, 1 through 3 on what the Gospel is. Christ died for our sins. He was buried, and, and on the third day He rose again. Clearly the Gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection, but the heart of it is, is Christ died for our sins. Well, there's the reason for the altar. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sins. Now, what I'm going to present next is really positive preaching about what God thinks about sinners. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our, all our righteousness are as filthy rags. How's that for? Someone um, said that Norman Vincent Peale was the one who wrote. Uh, power of positive thinking, and I heard some preachers say, I'm sure you've heard this too, is that, that Paul was appealing and Peel was appalling. There's nothing positive if it doesn't talk about sin and what God's remedy is. So God's telling us all our righteousness is filthy rags. God likens our conditions as sinners to the leper. Imagine that. Now, I wouldn't go out telling people, you, you know, you're leprous, but God is very clear on this. The leper used to cry, unclean, unclean. You've got to recognize your sinful condition. That's what God's dealing with. First and foremost, as those priests, as the, sacri- the animal sacrifices were given to the priest, the priest walked in, into the altar, and he took care of business day in and day out. As a reminder, what they were doing is crying, unclean, unclean, and they needed to be clean. So clearly... God has a reason for the brazen altar and its, and its bloodiness. It's connected to a lamb, by the way. So, we read, so there were a lot of instructions, and you'll read that in Exodus 29, verse 38. We'll, we'll try to spend some more time on this next week. But the brazen altar is connected to a lamb. He says, now this is that which thou shalt offer upon the altar two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. Imagine that. The sacrifice went in the morning. They killed the lamb. And, you know, we haven't, 
a lot of us haven't witnessed something that violent. But Adam and Eve witnessed that in the garden. When God called out that lamb and killed that lamb and took that blood and applied it to them, then God could deal with them and fellowship with them. But until then, there was no hope for them. And so we know that this is a violent and bloody sacrifice. So they had a morning sacrifice of a lamb and they had an evening to represent something eternal. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So the, the altar is connected to a lamb. And, the, and this is really interesting. It's connected to fire. And we see an offering made by fire unto the Lord. You'll see that often. Fire unto the Lord. Fire unto the Lord. And you read here in Leviticus regarding the altar and instructions, the fire was to never go out. That's really important. Never were they to let that fire, that altar burned 24-7. Never went out. Why would God have his, this fire going on nonstop with all the animal sacrifices all the time? This shows you what God thinks about sin. He says, the fire shall ever be burning upon the altar. It, the fire, shall never go out. Leviticus 6, verse 12 and 13. I'm reminded when I think of that, the fire that never goes out is a picture of God's wrath upon sin forever. And we see in Scripture, as the culmination of Scripture is completed, in Revelation 19, God talks about the lake of fire. That this is the second death that the sinner who has the wrath of God on them, they could, have, they could have had themselves released from the wrath of God by accepting the light, Jesus Christ. But they chose not to, so the wrath of God stayed on them. And the wrath of God is found in that altar every day, nonstop, because it's a picture of what God thinks about sin. He cannot overlook it. He cannot sidestep it. And He will never let it go. It will be here for all eternity. And I don't quite understand this, but theologically, I really believe this. That God is gonna, God's character has to be displayed for all eternity. And on the one hand in eternity, He will have those that trusted Him. Unworthy vessels that were sinners by nature who trusted Christ and, for, and what He did on the cross. And He will... Show them off for all eternity in glory because of His grace, His mercy, His love, and His care for them. But on the other hand, that's the one character of God. The other character people don't want to talk about is the God of hate. Hate for sin and the hate for evil. So God will display His character in all eternity with the glorious vessels of, that were unworthy and He will display His wrath for sin for eternity in the lake of fire. And thus, God is balanced in His character. He can't get rid of it. It will never go away. The lake of fire will be there for eternity. And that's why I believe that fire shall never go out. So we see the wrath of God, a picture of God's wrath upon sin forever in the altar. So it's a picture of the wrath of God upon sin. God is clearly teaching His people that he cannot and will not overlook sin. Now, when you get saved, he doesn't remember your sins. They're as far as the east is from the west. You say, well, if I sinned, then why would I have to confess anything? Well, God still has fellowship. We say, you know, we say we have no sin, 
We make him a liar. But he says, the wrath of God abideth on him. That's what I was referring to earlier. It's either you're in Christ or you have the wrath of God on you. And it's just, it ultimately will wind up in the lake of fire, the wrath of God. He doesn't want anybody there, but people choose that. And we were, by nature, the children of wrath. Thank the Lord. We were delivered from children as disobedience to children of light and reflect now the light of Jesus Christ. So here's how we'll conclude on this one. In the Old Testament, the fire consumed that sacrifice. But we learn in the New Testament, the sacrifice consumed the fire. Praise the Lord for that. We have a wonderful Savior who delivered us from that wrath as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your wonderful truths. Thank You for us being able to have fellowship with one another in the Word, being able to lift up our Savior. We pray that, Lord, You'll just have a special unction upon our, our, our guest speaker as he brings forth the Word. May the power of God be manifested. May You help each and every one of us to re, re, take this Word and to apply it to our lives to bring glory and honor to You. Thank You for all that You're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you and God bless.